0: This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at Johnson at parkviewfindley.org. This last week, my wife and I were driving to a place we'd never been before. She had the map up on her phone. It was on the little screen on our dash. Just wonderful technology and things that I need. She always gives me a hard time about my sense of direction, and rightfully so. I mean, there have been a few times where I've made a wrong turn. Most of the time, we'll, we'll be engaged in discussion, and I will miss the turn that I'm supposed to take, or I will be in the wrong lane, and she'll say, there's your turn, there's your turn. Are you, you going to turn there? And I'm just not in a place where I can do that because I've just been talking and focused on the meaningful conversation that we're having, and, and I'm going the wrong way. We were, we were driving and following the route. I was watching, making the turns as the, the map told me I should. And then the, the next one I saw, the, the next turn, I was watching for the street I was supposed to turn on. And I was looking for that green sign that lets you know this isn't a driveway. It's an actual road. When you get out away from town a little bit, sometimes you need to just kind of keep an eye on those things. So I'm watching. I'm looking. And I don't see a sign. And I'm looking at the, at the screen, and it says there's a turn. and I'm watching. I don't see it. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and we go past it. Like, I know I should have turned, I just didn't see a road. She said, it wasn't a road, that's the destination. That was the place you were supposed to stop. Oh. <laughs> so we went past it, turned off, got in a driveway, turned around, looped back, and, and got to the place where we were supposed to go. And I started thinking about the, the way I make decisions, the way we make decisions, and all the, all the information we take in. We have our own observations, obviously, that sometimes can be skewed. We have the influence of other people, and sometimes that's valid. That's, that's very good information that we should take into account, especially with someone that we trust, someone who, who's speaking truth to us. We have, we have good, reliable information that we have coming from a great resource. We have our own instincts, our own feelings. Have you ever been, been driving and you thought, I've been on this road before, and I feel like I should have already turned. But I can't. I can't quite tell. I'm, I've only been this way a couple of times, and it just this feels wrong to me. I've done that several times, and I thought maybe I'll just turn. It, I'll turn and, and see. And I'm always wrong about that. Just that that feeling about I should have already done that, but I haven't. And I have to. I have to go and find the right place. There's so many, so many sources of information. So many inputs that we have that we have to filter through as we make decisions. And I'm, I, for one, am glad that we have resources to help us make wise. Meaningful decisions that we can trust, that we can know are right. And as we move through our pa- our message today, what we're going to recognize is the value we have in, in being able to turn to God's Word and lean on Him to, to make decisions that are not only appropriate, but they're decisions that align us with His will. And we're going to move through a lot of, of material today as we come around to that approach Before we do, I want to to step back and and recognize where we are in the course of our sermon series. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been been discussing the events that lead to that. We began with the triumphal entry of Jesus riding on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. The disciples, this huge procession, palm branches being laid in the road. People taking off their cloaks and laying them down so that Jesus has this Incredible procession into the city, as if he were royalty. We talked about the the celebration of the Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, and all of the things that happened while they were while they were there and around that that meal. the The moment when Jesus dipped the bread in with Judas and said, "You're the one who's going to betray me." Certainly, you don't mean me. the The moment when Jesus took the bread and the juice and, and and instructed his disciples about how to remember his death after that he established with them the Lord's Supper. And then as they, they were leaving and talking, Jesus identified Peter as the one who would deny him. Peter said, no, no, not me. I, I would die before denying you. He said, no, certainly you will, and all of you will be scattered difficult moments in, in their lives, these events leading toward the cross. Last week, we we left Jesus and the disciples at Gethsemane in this olive grove garden where they had, had gone out of Jerusalem on their way to spend the night. They stopped for, for a time of prayer. And Jesus left the disciples to watch and pray while he went and and poured his heart out to God about what was coming, about the the suffering that he would endure, about about the cross that was coming, and, and wrestled with God over that, telling God about the, the the feelings that he had of wanting some way for this cup to be taken from him, but but still being willing to submit to the will of God to surrender himself and be faithfully obedient. Today we're going to talk about the next event that happened while they're still in, in Gethsemane, uh, Jesus gathered his disciples around and, and he was talking to them about staying awake. And then he said, look here, here comes my betrayer. And our, our main passage today is that passage in which Judas approaches with a, an armed contingent to take Jesus into custody. But before we get there, I want to, want to back up and talk about a couple of things. One is the, the themes that are present that we've been recognizing throughout the events that we've been discussing that remain, uh, that will remain through our series. The first is the, the sovereign power of God. The idea that, that God's will is being done through all of these events. And that's a difficult thing for me to, to wrap my mind around. I'll be honest. This, this, is, a, this is a difficult theme for me. And, and I know, I know the right answer, but, but I struggle with this idea that, that it's God's will that leads Jesus to the cross. He's doing it for me and for you. The the sacrifice of Jesus will bring about our salvation, and yet the the horror of the cross, the suffering that Christ will endure, it's a part of God's will. That Judas would betray Jesus. That The the disciples would live through these events with Jesus. All of the things that are going to take place, and I know it's happening to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill scripture, to bring about Salvation through Jesus Christ. And it requires faithful obedience. It requires each of them to submit to God's will. And we see that God is using these events for his glory and also for our good. Second theme we we have seen is the willingness of Jesus to head toward the cross. Now, each of the events show us different aspects of that willingness. In, in some cases, he's very resolutely moving toward Jerusalem, knowing the cross is waiting. Other moments, like in Gethsemane, where he 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 recognized the almost reluctance, the the, the dread of, of knowing what was in store for him and asking for uh, another any way that this cup could be taken from him and, and ultimately submitting to God's will. He was purposeful in, in his, the decisions that he made to be faithfully obedient to the will of God. The third thing that we notice is the, the, the opposing images of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah. He was welcomed into Jerusalem like a king. And then he'll be humiliated and led toward the cross. the the people of Israel are looking for this Messiah to come, believing that he's going to come in power and deliver them to prominence above the other nations around them, to overthrow the the Roman rule and and elevate them. And yet Jesus came to lay down his life in humility, out of love. And it's, it's a very contrasting view of the identity of Jesus, and yet we see how he is the fulfillment of all of these things, fulfilling the will of God especially. Where I want to start today is not with the moment when Judas walks into the garden, but back. The beginning of Matthew chapter 26 to understand how this event started to come about, to to begin to understand the the motivation of the the chief priests, of the the religious leaders of, of the Jewish people who were bringing about the death of Jesus. We're going to look in chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. If you have a Bible and you want to read with me, please open it up. The words will be on the screen behind me. And if you want to use a phone or tablet with the Version app, you can open up the app, search under events for Parkview-Finley, and find scripture and sermon notes there in the Version app as well. Here's what we'll read in Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now there's a plan in place. Caiaphas, the other religious leaders, they they recognize that Jesus is a threat, and they're, they're trying to remove that threat. But this this isn't something that, that has just come up for them. They've been planning this and plotting this for quite some time because they have been painfully aware of the attention of the people being drawn by Jesus, of the allegiance of the people shifting toward him. They've watched Jesus care for people. They've watched Jesus miraculously heal people. They've watched Jesus perform things that they cannot explain. And they are compelled by his presence. They're in awe of who he is. And the people of Israel, who should be looking to these religious leaders, are now turning to Jesus. And they recognized how dangerous this is for their position. the book of John, chapter 11, they had this discussion. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This plotting and scheming has been going on. The the Jewish leaders were, were planning to take the life of Jesus, working for quite some time to figure out how. They knew what they wanted to do. They weren't quite sure how they they could accomplish it. And part of the the difficulty they were having in making this decision is the fear they had of two groups in particular. First was the Romans. Second was the people. Now, the, the Roman government ruled this entire region. They had complete authority. And yet... The Romans allowed the people of Israel a certain level of autonomy within their rule. They recognized this religious group. They recognized that they had their own set of laws that were passed down from God to Moses. They recognized that they had their own court at the Sanhedrin, where they rendered verdicts, where they passed judgment, where they issued consequences, sometimes even a death penalty. And the Romans allowed that to happen. The Romans cared about about peace in their empire. And they were willing to make some concessions to allow some freedom within their rule. But if the peace was disturbed, then there would be problems. And so the attention of the religious leaders was also on the people that they depended on to keep the peace. Now, at first, they were worried that if, if the people shifted their allegiance entirely to Jesus, that they would no longer look to that ruling body of the Sanhedrin for authority. They would no longer have power over the people, and that the Romans would recognize that change and take away their, their, their people and their, their palace, their temple. The other thing they were worried about is if they handled the situation with Jesus incorrectly, if they tried to arrest, them, arrest Jesus in the middle of the crowd, that someone in the crowd might come to the defense of Jesus. They might call on people to help him, and that with the people who were gathered there for the Passover, that this scene might turn ugly very quickly. Now think about what, what they're imagining happening in Jerusalem. Typically there are about 50,000 of the Israelites living in Jerusalem. But during the Passover, the instructions in the Old Testament say that every Jewish person who can make it back to Jerusalem needs to gather together to celebrate the Passover. And if they aren't physically able to make the journey, then wherever they are, they turn toward Jerusalem and they celebrate the Passover facing Jerusalem, and it's okay for them to do that. But everybody who can make the journey has to make the journey. And so instead of 50,000 Israelites they are now potentially seeing five times that number. A quarter of a million, 250,000 Israelites in and around Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, that's a crowd to be reckoned with, especially if things turn ugly. And the religious leaders are afraid that if they violate the temperament of the crowd and, and a riot takes place, that the Romans will come in in force, physically intervening. And if that happens, then... They will have demonstrated to the Romans that they don't have control over the Israelites. And again, lose their power, lose their position, lose their authority. And so they're afraid. They're afraid to lose what they have. They're driven by this pursuit of power. They're driven by the desire to maintain what they have. At all costs to keep their, their positional authority over the people. And it's their pride that's driving them. We can't possibly lose to this man. We can't possibly allow people to to give their allegiance to him instead of us. We have to do everything within our power. And they allow this pursuit to overtake their lives. Caiaphas was determined to find a way to remove Jesus from the picture. Now, did did you hear what he said about this prophecy? As he's having a conversation with the other religious leaders, you don't know You don't know anything. This man will die for the sake of his people, to bring his people back together, even the children of God who are scattered. And he's determined to end the life of Jesus for his own purposes, but he is missing the mark in that prophecy. He may very well have been speaking the word of God, but he didn't understand what those words meant. Jesus would lay down his life. He would die, but he would accomplish something greater than this group of leaders could ever have imagined bringing together the people of God, those scattered who are the children of God, who would call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. Well, God was working through all of these men, through their actions, through their decisions, to bring about his will. But they were pursuing their own agenda. They weren't pursuing God's will. They were pursuing their own power. They were pursuing their own pride, chasing after those things, working diligently to take hold of them and to, and to keep hold of them. But through their example, we recognize a very important fact in our relationship with the Lord, that whenever we allow any other pursuit To become the focus of our lives. It will replace the pursuit of the Lord. We were made with one purpose. To love and worship God. To live in relationship with Him. Now, there are many of us who struggle with understanding that purpose. And we spend a great deal of our lives searching for meaning, searching for purpose, searching to answer that question. Why? Because we're looking to so many other places to answer that question. And we can only fully understand our purpose when we understand that our purpose was given to us by our creator. To live in relationship with him, to love him and worship him. And it's in him that we find fulfillment. It's in him that we find the answer to that question and and live according to that purpose. Yeah, there's so many other things in life that are vying for our attention. So many other things that are that, that draw us to pursue them instead of pursuing the Lord. And we hear how important it is to, to earn respect and maintain that respect. To, to, to gain the attention of people so that they will think highly of us. And, and, and we pursue pride. Because our, our, our name is important, our word is important, and we want other people to think highly of us, and we live to, to build ourselves up and maintain the image that we are, are respectable, that we deserve a certain level of respect. And, and as we're pursuing that, we allow that pursuit to replace the pursuit of Jesus, our Lord. We hear so, so much how important it is for us to, to prepare for the future, Uh, an inheritance for our kids, uh, uh, the ability to go to a good college. Uh, we We want to have things that we can bless the lives of people around us. And as we begin to pursue that purpose and chase after things and work, we find ourselves replacing the pursuit of Christ with the pursuit of something that really is beneficial, especially when we think in terms of the future of our family, but it's not supposed to be the purpose of our lives. Sometimes we chase after relationships, and we pursue people. And we make decisions that we think will, will please them, that will, that will draw us closer to them. And all the while, we find ourselves drifting farther and farther away from the Lord. As we pursue any other thing in this world, we find ourselves replacing the pursuit of the Lord that should be our primary purpose. And when we find ourselves there, when we, when we realize that we've given our lives to the pursuit of something else, the the most important decision that we can make is to begin actively pursuing the Lord, is to, to turn our attention back to Christ and work to develop that relationship with him again as we wholeheartedly give ourselves to the pursuit, as we wholeheartedly invest our time and attention and energy and growing closer to him, and living according to his example, and, and submitting to his will and to his kingdom. It's an important piece of who we were made to be. And yet that's not the way the, the religious leaders were behaving. They continued to pursue their own goals, to pursue their own power and pride. And they were watching and waiting for the right moment to make itself known. And as they were waiting, Judas approached them. Judas went to them as he was pursuing his own purpose as well. Matthew 26, verses 14 and 16. Here's what Matthew says. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Matthew's clear in his writing about who who Judas is. Judas is one of the 12. He's one of their own. And yet, he's willing to betray Jesus. This identification of of Judas emphasizes the the measure of his character. It emphasizes the measure of, of this betrayal. Now, Judas is one of the 12 not one of the hundreds of disciples that followed Jesus around and and heard him speaking and watched him do miracles, but one of the 12, one of that inner circle that, that lived life next to Jesus, that called him master, teacher. And as he pursued greed, as he pursued wealth, as he pursued gain, he was willing to betray Jesus. Now, remember, the religious leaders were planning to wait until after the Passover had been celebrated so that the crowd would dissipate, people would go back to their homes, so that it wouldn't be as big a deal when they went to arrest Jesus. They were waiting for that moment. But when Judas came to them, it sped up the process. It it, it moved their plan ahead of schedule. And while they were waiting for an opportunity, Judas presented that opportunity. How much will you give me if I deliver him to you. And I want you to focus on verse 16. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's what temptation does to us. It blinds us to reality as it draws our attention to opportunity. You think about what happened in Judas's life. A man who was as close to Jesus as the 12 were, closer than any other person around. And yet he ignored that reality. He was blinded to the reality of the relationship that he had with Jesus because temptation presented itself. And now he was living his life focused on the opportunity that would become available to hand Jesus over Judas was a part of a brotherhood of 12 men who lived their lives with Jesus. For the last three years, they followed him and listened to him and and called him mentor. And and Judas had this incredible relationship of encouragement, support, and, and learning with these other 11 disciples. And as he pursued his greed, he was blinded to that relationship, to those relationships Temptation blinded him to reality. As he waited for that opportunity to fulfill his desire. Isn't that the way temptation works for us? When we allow temptation to remain in our lives, when we allow temptation to get a foothold in our hearts, it begins to blind us to reality and draw our attention to the opportunity to indulge in our desires. And as we think about that temptation, As we allow it to be present, we begin to ignore the things that we once valued so much. We we become blind to the reality of our relationship with the Lord. Of the the strength and peace and hope that he brings to our lives. And and as we're tempted, for some reason, we, we are blinded to that relationship as we focus on That coming opportunity to indulge in our desires as we think about our relationships with other people. Temptation blinds us to the consequences of our decisions that we would hurt those people, that we would damage those relationships, maybe even end those relationships. And instead of of worrying about the, the results of what we would choose to do, we're blind to all of that as we wait for that opportunity. We're blinded to the consequences that will show up in our own lives of the way that we're going to have to pay for the wrong that we're about to do. And instead of worrying about those things, we're blinded to them as we focus entirely on the opportunity that's coming. That moment when we can indulge in sin, we wait for that moment when nobody's looking. We wait for that moment when people aren't around, when nobody's going to know what I'm going to do. And those opportunities present themselves all the time in our lives around us. There are people drawing us towards sin. There are places drawing us towards sin. We have to be careful about those moments. Recognize the weight of temptation that's present. Instead of becoming blinded to reality, let me be reminded of the example of Jesus, of holding fast to the truth and allowing the Lord to draw our eyes back to him. You think about the example we have of Jesus in Gethsemane when he was tempted again by that idea of allowing the cup to pass from him, of not going through with the suffering that he would have to endure. And even as he had those thoughts, even as he he made them known to God, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he stood against that temptation. He was faithful and obedient and submitted to the will of God. Judas provides us with an entirely different perspective of what it is to be drawn by that temptation, to ignore reality, to be blinded to reality, and to take the opportunity. And we see the the dire consequences that present in his life and reminded of, of how important it is for us to draw on the strength of the Lord, to lean on His word and to choose to be faithfully obedient and surrender and submit to His will. The next passage is the 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 focus of our sermon. The, the moment when Judas arrived as Jesus was in Gethsemane talking with His disciples. After He had gone to pray and came back and found them sleeping, and He said, "Get up! Here comes our here comes my betrayer." verse 47 of Matthew 26, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I, can, I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. You didn't arrest me. But this has t- all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Last week we talked about the, the decision that Jesus made to go to Gethsemane. That he could have he could have gone to hiding he could have he could have run away from the events that were going to transpire and yet he chose to deliberately go back to the place where he had been with his disciples he chose to deliberately go back to the place where he knew judas could find him and and john verifies that information that judas knew the place because jesus had often met there with his disciples and so judas brought this group a detachment of soldiers, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And they came to arrest Jesus. And as they came, one of the companions of Jesus put himself in the way. Drew his sword and struck. Now, John would tell us that that companion was Peter, acting impulsively, coming to the defense of Jesus, stepping in the way to to give his life to defend the Lord. And Jesus said, Put your sword away. And he touched the, the head of the person who had lost his ear and healed him. Notice the demeanor of Jesus as he's being arrested. He calmly spoke to Judas. Do what you came for, friend. He calmly corrected Peter. Put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call on the power of heaven to defend me, but that's not the way this was supposed to happen. That's not the the will of God for these events. And he called on Peter to submit to the will of God so that they could align their lives with God's purpose. So they could align their lives with God's will. And as much as we struggle to know the, the will of God, what we find through this example is that obedience to the word of God aligns us with his will. As much as we struggle with that thought, as much as we, we, we labor over that idea of how we can discover God's will for us, what we find is that if we're simply obedient to the word of God, we will align ourselves with his will. And that's what Jesus called Peter to do, to listen to the words that he spoke Put your sword away so that Peter could align with God's will for the events that were transpiring. Now, Peter didn't seem to understand the ramifications of what he was doing. I mean, obviously, his instinct, his impulse was to defend Jesus. But if he had been successful, then what? Jesus was still going to have to die. It was God's will for him to lay his life down on the cross. And while Peter didn't understand the purpose, he obeyed and he put his sword away. And as he did so, through his obedience, he came into alignment with God's will. That's an important lesson for us to think about because of the the way in which we make decisions, the all of the different kinds of input that we have, that we allow to, to, to inform us in our decision-making. If we want to align ourselves with the will of God, the first thing we need to do is to obey the word of God so that we can come into alignment with his will. Now, there are times when obeying God's Word is going to be counterintuitive. It's going to go against what we, what we think we need to do, just like Peter drawing his sword. We're, we're going to have those moments where our instincts tell us, I should, I should seek self-preservation in this moment. I, could, I should seek to, to defend my honor and my character. I should, I should behave in this way. And yet, when we read from God's Word, we discover that, that there are moments in life that in order to be faithful and obedient to His Word, we have to act against our instincts. and humble ourselves and hold our tongues so that we can align ourselves with God's will. There are times when we choose to obey God's word that we're going we're gonna to be called on to, to, to act against our feelings. And we might be feeling like, Something is is the right decision. We might we might go to a particular place or come to a decision and feel like this is this is right. Feel like you, you get that 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 sense when you're you're doing a certain thing and it just feels right. That 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 sensation cannot always be trusted. And every time we get a feeling that tells us that we're right or a feeling that tells us what we're wrong, we need to measure that against the truth of God's word. Because very often, what God calls us to do, the decisions He calls us to make through His Word, will violate our feelings there will be hard decisions that we have to make. They're not going to feel good at all. But we'll recognize how they align us with God's will. Because they're productive. And sometimes we grow most significantly through pain. And that's not a feeling that we pursue. But sometimes it's where God calls us. There are times when in order to obey God's word, we're going to have to, to act against our observations. No, I see what I see, and I know that to be true. And yet I, I can't always trust the things that I see. I can't always trust the things that I read. I can't always trust my senses. And in order to be obedient to God, in order to align with his will, I have to choose to trust his word over and above there will be times when we want to obey God's word and we'll find ourselves acting in a way that that, that deviates from the the way everybody else is making decisions. And we'll have to choose very distinctively not to be shaped by the same mold of culture, not to go with the flow of society, not to trust the decisions that the people around us are making, but instead in order to, to follow what God's word tells us to do, we're going to have to stand apart in that painfully awkward aloneness of choosing what other people aren't. The people looking and pointing and wondering, why Why are you doing what you're doing? It was because I'm basing my decisions off what the word of God tells me. And we'll find that as we do that, as as we allow God's word to guide us, as we allow it to be, our directional input, that that we will be choosing to serve God and his kingdom instead of working for our own gain. We will be submitting to the will of God instead of protecting our own interests. We'll be choosing to care for other people in a way that might even be detrimental. But it's what God's calling us to do. And that's what it means for us to wholeheartedly pursue Christ with our lives. That we would take every moment, every opportunity to live for Him. Even when other people don't understand what we're doing. That we would choose to surrender all of who we are toward that pursuit as we align with God's will.